If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. Jesus Peeps, sermon last week touched upon an important issue, one that's become quite the talking point in some Christian circles today, and that is this. If Jesus were walking around earth today, who would he be hanging out with? Now, there is a reason for this question having come into the forefront, and we will get to that reason. But first, let us consider the sort of answer we keep hearing. This answer came on Quora, which said, based on what I vaguely remember from Sunday school, probably the same people he hung around back then, which are mostly the poor, unprivileged, and societal outcasts. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be hanging around the bishops in the Vatican or with reverends of the megachurches in the USA He also wouldn't be around rich people in general, most especially politicians. Another answer on the same site said, biblically, he spent a lot of time with the outcasts of society, prostitutes, thieves, beggars, etc. Today, he would likely be found with much the same people, the persecuted and outcast. Another site suggested this. If Jesus were to come back today and hang out, who would he spend time with? we can deduce that Jesus enjoyed hanging out with those who society considered outcasts. Jesus spent a great deal of time hanging out with sinners and often got into trouble with the religious people. If you're a non-believer, please know this. If Jesus came back today to hang out, he would want to hang out with you. He loves you and doesn't judge and actually would prefer your company. Look at what comes up in common in all these answers, the things that keep coming up. Jesus hung up out with the poor, the underprivileged, the societal outcasts, uh, the persecuted, the prostitutes, the thieves, the sinners. Uh, he doesn't judge them. He just loved hanging out with them. These are Jesus' peeps. On the flip side, who did he not like hanging out with? Well, of course, with the religious people. In the scriptures, Jesus many, many times had serious confrontations with the religious leaders of his time. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day whited sepulchers, fools, blind guides, hypocrites, serpents, murderers, a generation of vipers, and many such names. Jesus spoke this way to the religious leaders throughout his ministry. He virtually had nothing nice to say about them, yet the Lord Jesus had more conflicts with the legalists of his day than any other group. It wasn't the adulterers, the robbers, and that sort of, but Jesus on the cross, it was the legalists. As we read through these comments, we kind of come up with this picture that there are people who consider Jesus to be some kind of, some sort of hippie love child, like in that old 19th century movie, God's Spell. He just loves being with the marginalized and the outcasts because they are marginalized and outcasts. And he won't judge them. You can come as you are. He loves you just the way you are. The people he doesn't like, on the flip side, are the religious people. You know, the ones who insist on keeping the rules. That's, that's the common picture that's developing in an awful lot of parts of society. But is this accurate? Is that really the way Jesus acted when he was with us on earth? 
Do we want the right answer to this question? If Jesus were walking around earth today, who would he be hanging out with? How do we find the right answer? Well, by answering this question. When Jesus was walking the earth, with whom was he hanging? Pretty simple reasoning that that's the way we can find the answer. So let's look into this and see if this common view that's developed in these days, if it's actually accurate. So let us ask, with whom did Jesus hang out? Well, if you read through the gospel books, you follow Jesus' career, who are the people that he hung out with, the people that he was with frequently and across time periods in his ministry? Well, obviously, they were the apostles. He was with the apostles. He hung out with them. We read in Mark 3.13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. So Jesus picked his peeps, and he picked the apostles. And we don't know an awful lot about the apostles. We know that one was a tax collector, which would have made him unpopular. They were fishermen. But most of them we don't really know a lot about where they were in the socioeconomic strata. Most of them probably not rich because most people were not. Being poor wasn't an outstanding trade in those days. It was the common trade. Who else did he hang out with? Well, there were certain women who traveled with him. And with his entourage, we read in Luke 8, Verses 1 to 3, now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chutza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them from their substance. Suggest these people were actually not poor. Who else? What other friends of Jesus do we ever find identified gospel books? Well, there's also Lazarus, Mary, and Martha from Bethany. Uh, we'll appear in Luke chapter 10 and John chapter 11 and 12. And as far as I can tell, these are the only people with whom Jesus actually hung out. These are the people with whom he went repeatedly and spent a long time. They were his friends. Now, they had no trouble associating with other people. They had no trouble going to meet other people. The ones he chose to hang out with were these. He went to other people, certainly. Yeah. You see here, after he calls Matthew, also known as Levi here, he calls him, what does Matthew, what does Levi do right away? He gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. Tax collectors were very unpopular people. I venture to say they still are, but they're particularly unpopular then. And the scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, the tax collectors are certainly marginalized people, right? They're outcasts, right? Poor tax collectors. And that's just one example. So why did Jesus go and hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Not not same ones on an ongoing basis, but he would go to these people. Why? Is there something special, something noble about the margins, about being poor? There are actually some, some theologians who suggest that there are. Uh, does God have extra care for them? Well, let's look at the Psalms. Let's look at other books in the Bible. Psalm 12, verse 5, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8 to 10, God sends a message through Zechariah. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. 
you shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the poor. Well, that sounds a little bit different. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. And again, in Exodus 23, 3 and 6, you shall not show partiality to the poor man. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. So in fact, God's law says, no, you, you don't show partiality based on socioeconomic status. You have to do justice. Another thing we can overlook when we look at this issue is this. We're going back to the feast of that Matthew threw in his house for Jesus and his apostles. Was Matthew marginalized? Was he an outcast? Well, he obviously had friends. There's a whole bunch of people coming to his house for his partay. But of course, the Jewish society as a whole wanted nothing to do with him. But why? Because he chose to take on a profession in which he would extort people and impoverish them. Why would he want to associate? Why would people want to associate with such a man? This is not a man who's, who's marginalized to no fault of his own. If he is marginalized, it's because he has chosen to do something that oppresses people. It's a problem, folks, with lumping all of the outcasts together. The poor, underprivileged, societal outcasts, prostitutes, thieves, beggars, persecuted outcasts. There's a world of difference okay, between being an outcast because you're poor, because of the color of your skin, versus people not wanting to hang with you because you choose to engage in immoral acts. If you choose to be a thief, you choose to steal from people, why would people want to be buddies with you? So we have to like stop lumping all these so-called outcasts together. And there's another thing. Yes, Jesus did indeed eat with the, the marginalized, with tax collectors and sinners. But contrary to the popular picture, he also ate with the rich. He may have with Pharisees. We see here with Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, who was he? Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. But he cares to see Jesus. He actually climbs a tree so he can get a look at Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. He actually takes the initiative to go in and hang with this rich man, this tax collector. And then elsewhere in Luke eleven thirty seven, 37, we see, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. That picture that Jesus just, he had nothing to do with the religious people. He didn't like the rich people. All he went to was the marginalized. No, he went to anybody. Anybody was willing to receive him. And when we look at that, we have to ask ourselves, why then did he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's not because that idea that, we have that Jesus just loved hanging around the outcasts. He didn't judge them. He just accepted them. He didn't like the religious people. Really? In Luke 5, 27, he actually answers the question. And asks, why do you with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Wow. He wasn't going there because he just loved hanging out with the marginalized. That is so wrong. It is dead wrong. When he went to them, it was to call them to repentance that they may be saved. And this is why he went to rich people, Pharisees, poor people, tax collectors, marginalized, anybody who was willing to listen to the gospel. He went to them with the gospel to call sinners to repentance. So the idea he went and hung around them, he didn't judge them, he just loved them. No, no, no their sins mattered. There was, in fact, nothing meritorious in being an outcast especially it was because of your own sinful behavior. They needed to repent. And Jesus spent time with them, with the outcasts, with the rich, 
with the Pharisees for the purpose, the express purpose of calling to repentance, not just because he liked hanging out with them. Anyone who's willing to hear, anyone who could be brought toward repentance, regardless of whether you're oppressed or not, that's what he did. That's why he went to them. That was his mission. That's why he came to save the world, and people needed to hear that message. We see it illustrated very nicely here in Mark 1, 32 to 39. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Uh, Jesus is in the house of, of Peter, and the whole town is coming together. They all want healing. They want these, these social services, and Jesus giving it to them. He's healing. He's casting out demons. Finally, it's this light. Everybody goes to bed. What does Jesus do early in the morning? Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. What do his followers do? Simon and those who are with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. There's still sick people. There's still demon-possessed people. Come back and do these social work. Does Jesus answer? He says, but he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I've come forth. I've come forth, you might mean that's why he came forth out of the town of Capernaum, or it could mean he came forth from heaven. This is his mission. He didn't come to hang around people and be pals with them. He came to save them and save the world. That's what I came for. So I, I can't stay here. My time is up. I cannot stay here. And just keep healing the same group of people. I have to go and bring the message of salvation everywhere. Hmm. Does that seem mean? I mean, you might say, like, but, 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 but wait, like, Jesus was a friend of sinners. That means he liked hanging out with them, right? What does it mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Here's the answer from God questions. The fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners means that he is our friend, is waiting for us to acknowledge his presence and availability and so on. To be a friend of sinners, Jesus did this. Despite our sinful condition, Jesus desires a relationship with us. For the God questions, that's what it means that Jesus was a friend of sinners. For the navigators, Jesus is described in Luke 7, 34 as a friend of sinners. This means that Jesus was liked, trusted, acquainted with, and allied in struggles with people who had yet to see him as their Savior. Likewise, these things had to have been true of those people from Jesus' point of view as well. After all, friendship is only friendship if it is mutual between the two parties. So according to navigators, Jesus liked, trusted, and was acquainted with prostitutes, thieves, robbers, tax collectors, and so on. As Rich Wilkerson Jr., a friend of sinners, why Jesus cares more about relationships than perfection. It just sounds funny. It's Jesus, the friend of sinners. Got that? Or is there a problem here, folks? The problem is the Bible never says Jesus was friend of sinners. Where do we get this idea from? Well, I go back to Matthew 11, 16 and 19, and the parallel passage in Luke 7. But to what? This is Jesus speaking. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Now, who actually said Jesus was for sinners? Does the text say? Does the narrative say? Does Jesus say? No. 
the Pharisees and scribes accused him of that. They accused John. They said John has a demon. Was that true? No. They said Jesus was a glutton. It was an accusation. Is that true? No. They accused Jesus of being a wine-bibber. Is that true? No. So then their final accusation, friend of tax and sinners, why should we consider that that one is true? This was a, an accusation brought against some of my friends, not something that God ever said about Jesus. In the context, we should see this as another false accusation. Jesus, in his love, will go to sinners. He will spend time with them. He calls them so he can save them. But here's the thing, folks. Do not be friends with Jesus? Standards are rather high. In James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Perhaps even higher, in John 15, 13-15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. People are not automatically friends of Jesus. They're certainly not friends of Jesus by virtue of being sinners. Yes, he loves, he calls, he offers salvation. He will spend time if that's what it takes to get you to accept the message. But you want to be friends of Jesus. Here's the standards, folks. Think about it. The apostles reached the status of friends. They obeyed him. They followed him. Yeah, they weren't perfect. But in the end, as far as we know, they, every one of them gave their lives for Jesus. It's pretty high standard. You want to be his friend. That's a pretty high standard, folks. And yet we're seeing so much of this now. So much of the world wants to be Jesus. The one who just is a loving flower child and doesn't care about sin. This is the reading this kind of thing now. This is this is what we want. So many people in the world. Why? Why do they prefer that, Jesus? Because the underlying message is so appealing to some people. Sin doesn't matter. You don't need to repent because Jesus loves you just as you are. You don't need to choose between your sin and Jesus. You can have both. You can have Jesus and still live however you want. And that's an appealing message to a lot of people. People are trapped in one sin or they don't want to give, give it up. They love their sin. And oh, Jesus or my sin? Jesus or my sin? Jesus or my sin? Difficult choice for some people. So what happens when the message comes on and says, you don't have to make the choice. You can't vote. But it's a lie, folks. Sin does matter. It matters to God. Notice again here, Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If sin doesn't matter, why does Jesus call them to repentance? Or it even designated sinners, if sinners doesn't matter. Why didn't say, I have not come to call the righteous, but go and hang out with sinners and not judge them and love them just the way they are. It wasn't repentance. His first words in the gospel according to Mark. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They go hand in hand, folks. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's his first words. Right to us, not quite, but almost his last words in the gospel according to Luke. Luke 24, 46 to 47. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins 
should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. If sin doesn't matter, why is Jesus setting out his apostles to preach repentance? Why is that the first word in what he gives them in their message to take? Oh, the woman taken in adultery that Jesus rescued. Like, this is a prime example of those people who talk about Jesus being a friend of sinners. Sinners, sin doesn't matter. Look at this. This woman, she's taken in adultery. And, you know, the story, uh, they drag her before Jesus. And they say, oh, she's taken adultery. Moses commanded that such should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus first doesn't answer. And then he says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And, of course, nobody does. They just walk out one by one, oldest to youngest. And when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw her and said, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. Look at that, Jesus coming in on the side of the sinner. Jesus siding with the adulteress against the religious people. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus extended forgiveness, but the sin matter. And that's why I said, sin no more. We see the same thing in John chapter 5, where he heals that man who's been lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. 38 years, a cripple. Who could be more marginalized, more vulnerable than that? And Jesus heals him, but he doesn't leave it at that. We read, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more. That's the worst thing come up. Sin doesn't matter. Why did Jesus say this to him? Why do you actually have to go back to him after healing him and warn him about this? Because it does matter. Being a Christian does not give us a license to sin. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the true Christ alone, not by works. By works of law, no flesh shall be justified. So our salvation is based on our faith. Does that mean the works don't matter? Absolutely, it does not mean that. We don't have a license to sin. Paul says, shall I sin that grace may abound? There's no exact way to translate it to what he said after that into, into English. In Greek, which the old King James Version translates, God forbid. It's not a literal translation, but it gets the, the point across. Like, no way. We are continually told not to engage in sin. These are people who are believers, saved by faith. And they're told, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us walk properly, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. He's speaking to Christians. They're saved. They don't need to do this to be saved. Paul reminds them, we gave you commandments through Jesus, how you should live. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, for God did not cause to uncleanness, but in holiness. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, abstain from every form of evil. Sin matters. Oh, and here's another interesting thing. You remember these guys? The bad guys? And they're bad. Why? Because they actually insisted on keeping the law. And Jesus bashed them for it. How unreasonable. How unloving. You're expecting people to obey even little details of the law. Well, that's just not right. Jesus didn't care about that, did he? The guy said, yeah, let it go. Relax, chill. But guess what? Jesus never bashed the religious people for keeping the law or for insisting on keeping the law. 
I don't know where people got that idea from because you don't have to read too far before you realize that he bashed them for not keeping the law. <laughs> Look at Mark chapter 7. This is why he's bashing them. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And again, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And then he gives an example and says, you're making the word of God of no effect to your tradition. Does this sound like Jesus is criticizing them because they kept the law? Clearly not. He criticized them because they didn't. They set it aside, overrode it with their traditions. That's what he's bashing them for. In fact, he said you should keep it. He said you should keep all of it. It all mattered. You know, all's gone now, but at that time, it was still in effect. And look what Jesus said. In that chapter, when he was tearing a strip off the Pharisees in Matthew 23, in the midst of it, this is part of what he says. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So again, he's not criticizing them for keeping the law. He's criticizing that because they kept the, the minor details of the law. They ignored the big stuff. They didn't keep it. That's what he's bashing for. He said, you should have done those big things. Without leaving the others undone. He said, they were, the little ones are fine. Don't leave the little ones out. The problem is not that you kept the little laws and insisted on keeping them. The problem is those are the only ones you kept. So he's saying them flat out. You ought to have kept the weightier matters but also the little ones. Jesus was never the kind who said, sin doesn't matter. What God said doesn't matter. You have to kind of let it go. Once again, we're not saved by doing these. We do not need them to be saved. But as Christians, we should be doing the commands in the New Testament to please him. That doesn't go over so well these days. If we point out that a person is doing something wrong, uh, that it's a sin, well, wow, it's just being judgmental. And you know what comes after that, right? After you're accused of being judgmental, this one, I'm offended. We live in a society where, where nobody can call evil evil. Because if you do something, you'll be offended. The world, and increasingly, some of those who call themselves Christians want this kind of Jesus. Yeah. Or think we have this kind of Jesus, the one who winks at sin, parties hardy with sinners, doesn't care what they do. He just loves you to pieces anyway. And I have news for those people. That Jesus doesn't exist. This is the one that exists. This is the real Jesus. There were present at that season some who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? That's how you know. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? That's how you know. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The real Jesus didn't, doesn't wink at sin, doesn't take it lightly. We need to heed the Bible's warnings to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. And I don't know how many people here like really take that seriously. How many call themselves Christian, but doesn't affect how they live. I'll leave you with this, folks. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You can see it, John 2, 24. He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in men. So you need to ask yourself where you stand on this. Are you the type that believes gospel but winks at sin and lives however you want? 
Are you the type that's okay with people living in sin and who actually affirm them in it? You want to deny God the right to judge and say, hey, look, this, this looks good to me, so I don't care what the Bible says? Are you the type that wants to please the Lord by obeying him and taking his word seriously? Because he is looking into your heart right now and he sees the truth. Ask yourself, what is he seeing? Think about it. Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. We would love to hear from you. Please feel free to share any questions or comments you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Simply search Truth In My Days as one word. Again, Truth In My Days as one word, no spaces in between. And you can connect with us. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you. Thank you.